This is a wonderful Lord's Day, and it is so good to see all of you here this morning. And uh, what a great uh, crowd you are. I'll tell you, there's no place. There's no place on earth like Bethany Bible Church. And I've been to some of the remotest places that you can name. And uh, it's always good to come here on the Lord's Day. You know, the thing that people tell me the most about being here, they they notice the friendliness and they notice the love that we have for each other. And isn't that what it's supposed to be? They'll know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. It's one thing to love the world. uh, uh, It is in the, the people in the world. And it's another thing for Christians who get together to love one another and to show that love in Christ to each other. And that is a, a marvelous thing. I've been in lots of, lots of churches across this country, hundreds of them. And I've been in some where we went in and, and we sat down and nobody ever spoke to us. And that's a sad commentary. Uh, let us not let that not happen here, and I, it doesn't happen here. It's uh, just every week, uh, everyone is together and and loving one another in Christ. So that's the way it ought to be. Well, those that are visiting this morning, we're very happy that you're here, and uh, trust that you'll be blessed from being here this morning. We are in a study, uh, verse by verse study of the Gospel of John. And we've now come this morning to chapter 12, beginning at verse 20, which I just read. This is our 114th lesson in John, and we have quite a few more to go. Now, by the time we get to verse 20, we are at the end of Jesus' public ministry. It is truly in sight. The remarkable proof that Jesus is the Son of God has been brilliantly displayed in chapter 11 with the final, with the final uh, miracle that Jesus performed in raising Lazarus from the dead. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that... Uh, that colt of a donkey, it seems that the people had recognized him and accepted him as their Messiah. But it was only a a temporary uh, knee-jerk reaction to what had taken place in Bethany. I mean, the, the the fame of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead has gone out through all of the land. And many people came just because they wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised. Because of that, the Jews hated Lazarus as much as they hated Jesus and were trying to figure a way to put him to death as well. Of course, we're not told what happened to Lazarus after that. Um, uh, Craig and I were talking this morning about Lazarus and (laughs) what was it like for Lazarus to come back from the dead and ex- with having experienced all that he had experienced. And how did he die 
that second time in his earthly life, uh, what did he die from? We're not told any of that. The thing that's important is that Lazarus was raised from the dead. He is a picture of what it looked like in the new birth. And so these people wanted a king, but they wanted a king their way. They wanted one that would do what they wanted him to do. The Pharisees, seeing this spectacle of him riding into Jerusalem, and the crowds shouting, Hosanna, uh, were struck to the heart with fear. And to them, it looked as though the whole world was going over to Jesus, and they would be on the out. Now, in verse 20, we're told that some Greeks came, and they came to Philip, and they made a request to see, to see Jesus. This seems to be sort of a symbolic way of seeing that the gospel was going to be spread to the entire world. That it would go outside of Israel. These Greeks that came to Jesus were not only representative of the whole world, of the Gentiles, who would, who would eventually have Jesus as Lord, but they stand in stark contrast to the Pharisees <clears throat> who had rejected him at every turn. It seems that it has brought to pass the saying that they made in verse 19 that the whole world was indeed going after him. Now, some have argued that these Greeks were uh, Greek-speaking Jews. But John uses a different word for them than he does for the normal word of Greek-speaking Jews. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6, if you will. Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> I'll show you the difference. He uses, there are two words that are used in the New Testament for Greek speakers. And this word that we find here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, is the other word. Now notice, in the, day, in the days, these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, there's the word, by the Hellenists, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so we have this word, Hellenist. It comes from the Greek word, Hellenistes, which is a word that is, that is speaking generally of Greek-speaking Jews. It attempts to convey something uh, of these people, but it was more than just speaking the language of the Greeks. It involved a degree of adoption of Greek culture as well. So the Greek-speaking Jews were called Hellenists because that was the days of Hellenism. Uh, the whole world, was because, because of Alexander the Great's uh, 
conquering the whole world was generally a Greek-speaking world. Much like most of the world is an English-speaking world today. There's hardly anywhere in the world that you can go that people, someone, doesn't speak English. Well, this is the way it was in the ancient times, in the first century. Alexander the Great had sent the Greek language and the Greek culture throughout the known world at that time. So these people were Greek speakers, but they were also, they had Greek in their thought, their, their customs, their lifestyle, as well as their language was Greek as well. The city of Alexandria in Egypt was a focal point for many of these Greek-speaking Jews, but they had scattered and spread throughout the world at that time. So John uses this, uh, Luke uses this word Hellenistes, which is the Greek-speaking Jewish world, but John uses a different word. It's on it's the same origin, but it, it's the word here for simply Greek people. It's the word Hellenes, which means a person whose origin comes from the Greek-speaking world. They were often called barbarians by the Jews because the Greek language to the Jew who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic uh, sounded like bar, 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 that's what they would say, uh, barbarians. And so uh, these Greek people were obviously God-fearing because we see them going up to Jerusalem to worship. Most Greeks worshipped the gods of the Greek culture, but these seemed to be like Cornelius of Caesarea, who in Acts chapter 10, it says, was a devout man who feared God with all his household. So there were some Greeks who admired Judaism uh, without becoming full-fledged converts. Full-fledged converts were called proselytes. They, they would have totally forsaken their Greek uh, worship of the Greek gods and, and the culture, and they would have become Jews. And so, <clears throat> these Jews, obviously, were the, of those who uh, admired the Jewish God who came up to worship. We don't know that they had turned to Christ in faith, but they certainly seemed to be interested in everything that he says, for they were looking for him and wanted to have an audience with him. They would have had access to the temple only through the court of the Gentiles. They would not have had access to the inner part of the temple um, because no Gentile was allowed into the inner court area. In fact, uh, it was a there was a notice that hung on the wall of the inner court that warned all Gentiles to keep out on pain of death. If they entered there, they would have been, they would have been put to death. There was certainly a wall of hostility, as Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. <clears throat> so we see these Greeks approaching Philip. Maybe they approached Philip. Because of his name. Philip was a Greek name, meaning lover of horses. 
And uh, so they said to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Not just see Him, but to talk with Him. They wanted to visit with Him. Their desire to see Him and talk with Him face to face also stands in contrast to the crowds whose chants of praise were only superficial. The Jewish people didn't want to know uh, Jesus, but these Greeks want to know more of Him. So because of Israel's rejection of Jesus, God's judgment would come upon, upon them and they would be set aside as a nation and the gospel then would go out to the world. This was all talked about, all prophesied by the Lord himself in chapter 10, verse 16, when he said, I have other sheep, them I also must bring in. The word other there means other of a different type. There are two words in the Greek language for other. One means another of the same kind, and the other word means another of a different kind. He uses this word another of a different kind in that passage. He's talking about the Gentile world. He's talking about the world other than the world of the Jew. Also, Caiaphas, who made the statement, uh, the prophecy in chapter 11, verse 52, when he said that Jesus would die for the children of God who were scattered abroad. That would be both Jew and Gentile. For it was only a very short few years and the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth. Israel's rejection of Christ and their subsequent judgment of being scattered to the four winds was prophesied in the Old Testament in several places and repeated by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. If you'll turn to Romans 9, we'll look at that passage. <coughs> you have to excuse my voice. I'm still getting over this cough that I've had for going over two weeks now. But we'll get through as the Lord gives us <clears throat> ability. All right, notice Romans chapter chapter 9. And verse beginning at verse 25. <clears throat> As indeed he says in Hosea, there's one of the passages... This is from Hosea chapter 2 and Hosea chapter 1. Notice what he says. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there will they be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries, out concerning Israel. Through the number of the sons of Israel be as the, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, 
we would have been like Sodom and like become like Gomorrah. That's God's promise to Israel. That He would set them aside, scatter them to the earth, and no longer deal with them as a nation, but rather deal with them as individuals like He's dealing with the Gentile today. So today, even though, even though the Jews are a nation, Israel is a nation, God still is not dealing with them nationally. He's dealing with them individually, just like He does the Gentiles. The gospel goes out to the Jew and to the Gentile the same. That's why we have missionaries that actually go to Jewish people. <clears throat> and so in this passage, Paul quotes from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and, I, and Hosea 1, verse 10, and from Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23. Paul makes it clear that Israel will be restored and that God will forgive their sins and they will become His people and He will become their God once again. Now, if you talk to Jewish people, they'll say they worship God. They'll say they worship the God of their fathers. But they don't. Because the only way to truly worship God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, we don't know who these Greeks were that came looking for Jesus. We're not told. Why couldn't they find him themselves? That was one of the questions I had. Why couldn't they find where he was? I mean, he, Jesus was a prominent figure at this point. Well, I think probably the reason that they couldn't find him is very, very possible that he was in the inner court. And they couldn't go in there. And so they asked Philip. Philip goes and finds Andrew, <clears throat> another, another Greek name. He was also from the town of Bethsaida. Now, why, does that, why is that mentioned in the passage? It says, Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Because Bethsaida was very close to the Greek uh, area where Greek people lived. It was called the Decapolis. Uh, there were ten cities that housed mostly Greek-speaking people. <clears throat> and so... So Philip then took Andrew and went to Jesus. I think that it's very possible that maybe these Greeks had seen Jesus before. Maybe they had followed him when the great crowds of Mark chapter 4 and 5 followed Jesus. And very possibly they would have seen his miracles. We're not told. But when Philip and Andrew had conferred with one another, they probably didn't take these people. If Jesus were not in the inner court, they probably didn't take these Greeks to Jesus because they had been told by the Lord in Matthew chapter 10 not to go to any of the Gentile people, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so the 
the gospel was only to the Jew at this point. And it would be that way until Acts chapter 10. The wall of division was still very much holding strong. We're not told that these Greeks ever got to spoke to Jesus. I think probably they didn't get to speak to him. But the two disciples went and told Jesus that there were some Greeks looking for him. And it seems that this may be a preview of the future that will be unfolded in Acts chapter 10 when the Gentiles have the gospel preached to them and that wall of hostility between Jew and Greek is torn down. And you can see the results of that in Acts chapter 15 when Peter came back and told the disciples, the apostles, that he had taken the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus comments, beginning at verse 23, uh, after this news was related to him, is both striking and exclusive. Now, I use the word exclusive intentionally because that's exactly what it is. Now, notice his reply, verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That reply must have been puzzling to the disciples. I mean, it's not a straightforward answer. Hey, there's some Greeks out here that want, Lord, there's some Greeks out here that want to speak to you. They want to talk with you. And then he says, a grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die. That sounds like no answer at all. So what, what did this mean? What, did it, what was this address addressed to these two disciples all about? Well, it had to do with those who follow Jesus, whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile. The comments made in verses 23 through 26 constitute the first time that Jesus had spoken of his death having arrived. Prior to this, in chapter 7, chapter 8... And other places, Jesus always spoke of his death as not yet. It wasn't time. My time hasn't come. My hour has not arrived. But now, he is saying that death is approaching. It's coming. And it is the answer for the Gentile nation's salvation. His answer here is the gospel with all of its exclusive character. Now, why do I use that word exclusive? Remember what Jesus said? Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few there be that find it. He came to save many, it says. What about the others? 
They're excluded. Now, that sounds rather harsh. But the gospel is an exclusive gospel. It is one that is believed only and with the exclusion of all else for salvation. The exclusive character is such that it only includes those who have faith in Jesus. There's a great picture of this contrast between the Greeks and the Pharisees. In this passage, we see these Greeks wanting to find Jesus. Now we're told in Romans 3 that no one seeks God, right? No one seeks after God. It's God who seeks after people. But when God begins to seek a person and to bring that person to himself, it puts in the heart of that person a desire to want to find the truth. I think it's very likely that these Greeks were being drawn by the Spirit of God to the Savior. They would be included The Pharisees, who rejected Christ and blasphemed against Him, would not be included. They would be excluded. Now, we must not lose sight of the background here. Because the background here is the raising of Lazarus. It's still fresh in the minds of the people. A dead man who was brought back to life. He is the picture of what new life imparted to sinners looks like. It is an impossible life in and of itself. It is impossible to find in and of oneself. It must be imparted to the individual in order to be lived. Paul states this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, a very familiar verse. You needn't turn to it. Here's what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So he gives gives the reason he can live it. He, he He can live it because it's been given to him. By faith in Christ. In other words, the life of Christ is lived so clearly in us that what people see in us is not us, but Jesus. And that's the way it ought to be. When people ask you, why do you do the things you do? And why don't you do the things other people do? They're seeing the life of Christ in you. And that gives you the opportunity to open your mouth and tell them why you don't do certain things or why you do do certain things. It's one of the greatest avenues of testimony there is. Now Jesus' answer here is given in three parts. And these parts, these three parts, spell out the gospel message in its clarity and in its exclusivity. Let's look at them together 
in the time that we have left. Number one, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the Lord must be seen as glorified. Now what is Jesus doing here? Death is imminent. It's coming quickly. By the time we get to the end of chapter 12 and we begin chapter 13, there's only one more day left in Jesus' life. He knows that it's coming. He knows it's coming very quickly. And so he looks forward in time and sees the cross with all of its uh, ugliness and with all of its pain. And yet, he sees the glory in the cross and the glory after the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, what was that joy? It was reunion with the Father. It was resurrection. It was ascension to the, back to the, to the throne of God, where He belonged. He looked for that. Notice what it says. Who for the joy was, that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame of the cross, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He sees in these Greeks, Jesus sees in these Greeks, the beginning of that vast group of other sheep that he would bring into his fold. You and I are part of that. We're the other sheep. Those of us who, who know Christ in the forgiveness of our sins, who follow Him, who love Him, He is our Lord. We have been taken out of those who are excluded and brought into those that are included by faith in His name. The Jews have willingly and with malice rejected Him, but these Greeks, they want to see Him. And the only way they can enjoy truly, true fellowship with Him is through His atoning sacrifice on the cross. And so they represent the salvation of the millions that will follow Him in time in which He, he will be glorified. Listen, there's nothing that glorifies the Lord more than the salvation of a lost soul, one who was dead in sin brought to life in Christ. That's why we rejoice so much when a family member turns to Christ in faith. That's why we are so glad when we hear of people being saved. It's because it brings glory to the Savior. <clears throat> Today, across the earth, Jesus Christ is being glorified in the lives of millions of people because He was faithful unto death. So there's glory in that cross. So much so that the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that he didn't want to hear anything from them except Christ crucified. 
And if we, if we stay on that theme, we'll never go wrong. <clears throat> Number two, not only must the Lord be glorified, but the Lord must be seen as crucified. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. <clears throat> From now on, his death is an, is an imminent prospect. Now, Jesus knows when it's coming, but these disciples don't know. In fact, Jesus knew from the very beginning. John 12, uh, and this is what he'll speak of. In verse 27, he says, but for this purpose I came to this hour. John 13, verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. In John 17, 1, after he'd spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So his death is a part of the glory that he had just spoken of. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. His, without his death on the cross, there would be no future glory. All would be lost. Therefore, there is glory in the cross and glory in His death. This is the exact word that He gave to the true disciples, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus after His resurrection. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. You see, we look at these passages we know so well and we overlook things. And then we come back and we say, oh, I didn't look at that. I didn't see that. Here, this is one of them. Notice what he says. Verse 25 of Luke 24. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Now notice those words. And enter his glory. Now, we'll talk about the horror of the cross when we get to verse 27 and the shame of the cross. But here, the Lord must be seen crucified. It's part of the glory. Number three, notice verse 24, the last part. He says, if that seed falls into the ground and dies, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. We must see the Lord multiplied. Multiplied. He uses an illustration from agriculture to paint the picture of his words. The process of fruit bearing is found in the planting and death of seeds that are planted. The seed is put into the ground. And it's watered. And the seed actually begins to rot and die. 
But out of the nucleus of that seed comes a new life in the plant. And it sprouts up through the ground. It eventually grows into a bush or a tree or whatever, and it produces fruit. But if that seed is left alone, if it's put into dry ground, it will never die, and it will never produce any fruit. It has to die in order to produce fruit. And so, what you have here is the seed he's speaking of is himself. If it dies, it brings forth abundant fruit, just like itself. You plant apple seeds, you get apple trees with apples. If you plant pears, you get pears. If you plant squash, you get squash. You name it. They come forth after their kind. Augustine, St. Augustine wrote of, of this passage. He said he spoke of himself. He himself was the grain that had to die and be multiplied. To suffer death through the unbelief of the Jews. And to be multiplied in the faith of many nations. There's never been a death that produced fruit after its kind like that of Christ. His death and resurrection produces women, men and women who have his life and his character. Jesus said, because I live, you live also. He was talking about his resurrection life. Regardless of race or creed, everyone who believes in him receives the fruit of his sacrifice, which is a salvation that gives eternal life. Eternal life is just what it says. A life that never ends. The person who is given this eternal life receives it at the moment of faith in Christ. And it never leaves them. In Christ, you have it here this morning. It's eternal. Nobody can take it from you. If they could, it wouldn't be eternal. This is His promise for everyone who believes in His name and follows Him as Lord. And so, here we have the exclusivity of the gospel. It is the power of God to save, but it, only, it is only for those who die to themselves. What does that mean? He's talking about the life that a person lives. He is talking about the way a person lives with regard to themselves, their, their lifestyle. When you die to yourself and you find life in Christ, your life is no longer what it was. It's a new life. Just as Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation. 
in Christ Jesus. And so, people have this life which Jesus describes as hating, before it describes as hating one's life. Notice what he says in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now he's not talking about uh, masochism or injuring oneself or suicide. He's not talking about that kind of hate. He's talking about the hating of one's lifestyle, the hating of one's sin. People who love their sin don't have eternal life. But people who have eternal life hate their sin. They hate the way they used to live. And they don't want to live like that anymore. We're not talking about a human, a human turning over of leaves. We're not talking about New Year's resolutions. We're talking about a change of character, an inward change of heart that forsakes the former life as though it were dead. And indeed it is dead. This is the hate expression. It is the expression of giving preference to one thing over another. People who love their sinful lives, they don't want to lose it. But in order to have eternal life, they must lose it. They must give it up. They must forsake it for Christ. For if they don't, it will destroy them. Now, how do we know he's talking about that? Look at verse 25. Whoever loses his li- whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life, notice those words, in this world. In this world. We'll keep it for eternal life. So, He's talking about that worldly life that we all lived before we came to Christ, before Christ saved us. That life that where we cared about, number one, we didn't, we were, we, self was all we, we wanted. Just gratify the deeds of the flesh and of the body and get as much as we can. And, and uh, as the old beer commercial used to say, the gusto, get the gusto of life. That has to be lost. It's the worldly life, the pursuit of sin, the pursuit of self that he's talking about. The one who loves his life in this world by preferring it over Christ ultimately loses it. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is he he talking about? He's talking about losing that old life. Taking up a cross and bearing that cross. The cross is the implement of death. 
So that life that we had had to die. You meet people all the time who say they're Christians, but they're still living that old life. That old life of sin and self, that's what they're pursuing. Anyone who lives like that is not a Christian. You can't carry a cross and everything else in life too. It's impossible to do. You must prefer Christ before all all other things because Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. It's not a matter of can you. It's a matter of you must. So where Jesus goes, listen to this carefully now. Where Jesus goes is so narrow that you cannot carry anything with you. Everything has to be left behind. Everything. You say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that I'm to to give everything away and not have anything? No, not necessarily. You can have things. You just have to be willing to let them go. Listen, it... If you're a Christian here today, the things you have, they don't belong to you anyway. Everything you have is the Lord's. And believe me, you get too attached to them, He can take them away in an instant. We must be willing to lose it all. All of the attachments of this worldly life have to be given up to Him. And if it is lost in Christ, you've found everything. We can't take anything with us, can we? I had an old uh, fellow used to used to joke around with me, and he would he wasn't a Christian, I don't think, but he was. He was a joker, and he would say, Oh, them caskets, they don't have pockets. And he meant you can't take anything with you, and he was right. Because Christ is greater and more valuable and far more precious than anything we could have here, even our own life. And listen, folks. You think, well, I live in America. I would probably never have to forfeit my life for Christ. You don't know that. You don't know that. The way our world looks right now, anything can happen. When a person knows Jesus like this, he becomes his servant. And his desire is to follow Jesus. He becomes more than that. He becomes His child. So we are servant children to the Lord. Notice Jesus' last statement in verse 26. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. 
That blows me away. Why would the Lord why would the Lord want to honor someone like me? Or someone like you? I'll tell you why. Because you honor the Son. And you serve the Lord Jesus Christ out of faith and with joy in your heart. How does the Father honor that person? Well, first by making them His child in Christ. So the Father looks at us the same way He looks at Jesus. Because we're in Him. And that changes everything. Because of the fruit of His sacrifice, He gives us His life. He gives us His peace. He gives us His security. He gives us His love. And the Father reciprocates that to us because of Him. Listen to Jeremiah 24, verse 7. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. Is that you? Like I say every week, I know most of you, but I don't know all of you. And I would say to you, if you know Christ in the forgiveness of your sins, that's you. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from your sin to Christ? Has He given you a new life, a new desire to love Him and follow Him? You say, well, I don't, I don't know. Then fall before Him in your heart today and repent of your sins and turn to Christ and find in Him true life and true peace and true joy that's, that's greater than any circumstance you could possibly enter into. In this physical life. I pray that you'll do it. Those of you who know him. Draw close to him. And rekindle. Daily the love that he has for you. And you have for him. Let's pray. Father we do thank you for the. Day you've given us to come and to worship, and I thank you for all these people who have come out today from their homes in the cold. But Lord, our, our, our hearts are warmed by being here. We are, we are your children. We are your servants. We have lost our life here to find it in you. And so I pray, Father, that you would use us to glorify your name. To show others what it looks like to know Jesus Christ as Lord. This we pray in his name. Amen.